Hello and welcome to Take 18, a podcast where we love to talk about the movies because we love the movies and we love the movie we saw today, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, 30th anniversary today, July 3rd, 2021. It came out in 1991 and uh, we got to see it with Brad Fidel at the movie experience in San Luis Obispo and it was an experience. It was so awesome. I'm still on a high from it. Uh, absolutely loved it. So today what our podcast is going to be is actually just uh, a recap and it's going to be our Q&A with Brad talking about everything and um, if you missed it it was it was so awesome to be there in person and be able to ask Brad all these questions Um, I could have talked his ear off literally forever so uh, I just want to say a a big shout out to Brad for coming up and and being a part of it Uh, he lives here on the central coast and couldn't be happier to have him come be associated with us it was just fantastic uh, having him there. Also, I want to thank the movie experience of San Luis Obispo. Um, it really was amazing. I've never watched a movie in a recliner uh, and also with a beer. So it was pretty amazing. You guys have got to check it out. But right now, we're going to go dip into our, um, our Q&A. We had uh, some microphones on, and so Brad and I were talking, and then we got to get some audience input as well. So that is coming up here in just a moment. So... I uh, hope you enjoy the Q&A, and let's roll it. All righty. Uh, I think we're about ready to get started. Ladies and gentlemen, um, without any further ado, I'd like to introduce you to the film that you just saw, the composer, Mr. Brad Fidel here. Thank you. Um, Brad, that was absolutely fantastic to uh, be able to watch this here on the 30th anniversary. And you were just telling me this was the first time you've seen it in a theater since the premiere. Yes. <laughs> and I, I'm still getting PTSD from now. And, and also, uh, this is not the first Terminator movie that you did. No, I did the uh, <laughs> The Terminator. The Terminator. That's yeah, that was it's interesting to, to see this uh, and be reminded. Well, a little story. <coughs> I met my wife between the first Terminator and this. So she was with me at the premiere to this, but she had never seen the Terminator. And it wasn't something, sh- it just didn't come up somehow. We had kids and they were too little and whatever. And uh, recently um, there was a company that, decided to try to put on a live show of the Terminator with live band, which was quite a a feat, and I helped them develop it, and it was supposed to premiere at uh, Royal Royal Albert Hall in London last May, so you know what happened to that. Oh, no. I don't know that it'll ever be resurrected. But anyway, in preparation for that, we screened the Terminator, and she freaked out. I mean, it's so much darker and go for the throat in the sense this is like a big Hollywood adventure sci-fi movie, whatever, however you would categorize it, this, especially when you see that ending, it's all I'd almost say even horror. It, it, certain parts are horror elements to it. The you know? original. Well, oh, the original, Well, yeah. this a little bit, yeah. but I mean, yeah. just there's just something about the other one that was just so, even the colors. Yeah. There's a lot of warm colors here. The whole thing was black and blue, and you know. That's true, anyway, yeah. So, it was interesting, the contrast between the two. Yeah, absolutely. So y- 
I want to know uh, kind of how you fell into this with with Terminator and this uh, this I guess young director James Cameron and uh, how did how did you get approached by it? How did how did you get the job? Well, I'd actually I'd been scoring stuff for almost ten years okay. at that point, yeah. but very uh, in New York, interesting high level uh, television projects like uh, a project called Playing for Time. I mean, talk about contrast. It was about uh, a concentration camp and a woman's orchestra. The, the writer was Arthur Miller, so I was collaborating at age 29 with Arthur Miller. Little different kind of thing, you know? So people think, oh, this is who Brad is. It was like, it was from out of the blue, but um, a young agent in the office of the people that represented me uh, presented music to Jim and the main agents, the main partners, were not, oh, you know, they weren't that interested, low-budget horror action, whatever. And um, she just kept saying, Brad, you got to do this movie. And I bless her to this day for it, you know. And Jim just l listened to my music in his car for a few weeks and thought there was something there. Not, I mean, we did. she did put together a tape, not of the, kind of stuff I was talking about, but I mean of stuff that related in some way, some of the some of the more sci-fi and, and suspense stuff that I'd done. And Jim came uh, with his partner, Gail Ann Hurd, and showed me the film. And, um, you know, we, we talked and we moved forward. So The Terminator was, uh, The Terminator was a fairly big hit when it came out. I think it, it raised some, or opened some eyes uh, in terms of what, it could do for the genre, you know, in terms of everything. But I think that score that you did, that original theme, you know, it, it's it's. I, I think for a lot of movie going uh, folks, that it, it's it's so iconic and it is so. Just the moment you hear it, you know it's Terminator. I mean, there's no questions, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So, uh, and, and I mean, I'm going to credit that to you, or uh, you know, because it is so amazing that score. It, uh, am I wrong on that, or is yeah. right? Thank you. Thank you. So, um, so did you know it was? I mean, when you're when you're sitting there and you're watching this, you know, uh, before before it's scored, before you start your work, and and you're looking at what Jim has shot. Um, did you think that it was going to be as big as it, it is? The original. The original, yeah. I didn't know. Okay. No, I really yeah. didn't. But I have to say something. I've been working in low and medium budget films, not that many, mostly these kind of high-level TV pro uh, projects. And I had a lot of experience of meeting with a director before I saw the screening. And they always had a lot to say about what they were doing and, you know, just really this amazing, I was like ready to see something. And often it was like, wait a minute, where is it? <laughs> the thing that they were telling me about, they didn't get it. You know, the trick is you can have a script, you can have imagination, but getting it on film is, is a challenge, especially in, you know, lower budgets and fast schedules. But um, it's amazing how many people really got to a point where they kind of had this out-of-sync idea with what they did. Jim talked to me about the film, and I saw the film, and it was there. That's uh, what I do right. remember. Yeah. I don't you know, any, had any idea of how it would do commercially 
or whether people would accept this kind of almost new level, new bar of relentlessness, <laughs> yeah, you right. know, um, and a kind of complex concept of a story of the time of it all and how it all takes place. So we didn't know. In fact, I remember uh, an, the first screening was an industry screening, and Jim was like nobody. You know, he was like an art director, and then he directed, I think, Piranha 2 or something like that. And um, people were laughing in the wrong – there's some good laughs in both of the films, but they were laughing in the wrong places, right? And we're kind of, and then we walked out. This was at the Directors Guild in L.A. And I'll never forget, Jim was standing off, off to the side, like in the corner, as people were filing out, and he was like white, white as a sheet, because he had a lot at risk for this. And um, – I remember myself and my electric violinist, Ross Levinson, who plays on both scores, um, walked over and said, no, it's great. It's going to be great. you know." And he really was kind of, it was a bit of a shaky moment. Then I went off for a very rare vacation for like three weeks to Europe. And I came back and there was a pile, someone had been collecting her mail, a pile of the trade papers, Variety, Hollywood Reporter. And I'm like, seeing the story unfold and it wasn't that it was huge but it was way above expectations for what it was you know right and um and that was great and the other thing that happened was i turned on my answering machine i'd never met anyone in the cast this was post-production i'm separate i'm in my cave writing the music the <laughs> shoots already happened and there was a, a a message from linda hamilton on my old-fashioned answering tape yeah the, after the beep yeah after the beep and she just left me the sweetest message about how it could the music couldn't have been better to support the film and it was just uh anyway it was really it was moving it doesn't happen often that an actor who's usually moved on to their next project reaches back to a composer and does something like right, that. So right, right. Yeah. And so, okay, so Terminator, The Terminator was, you know, big success. And um, did you have any thoughts that you might be uh, saddling back up again for a part two? Well, Jim classically takes a long time between films. He kind of does, yeah. yeah. And that was what, like seven years or something? That was quite a bit, yeah. So I had kind of... You know, I went on and um, was always scrambling as a freelance person and trying to keep a variety uh, so I didn't get pigeonholed, which is Hollywood's want to do. And um, no, I, I really didn't know for sure. I, he, I hadn't, he was like, well, he went off and he did Aliens. Right, another little movie. Yeah, with the wonderful yeah. James Horner, <laughs> who unfortunately is not with us anymore. Right. Um, he kind of was going back and forth between James and I. It was kind of interesting. Um, but anyway, um, I didn't. And then I got the call to talk to him. And the script, which was numbered. Oh. So picture, it's a script. Every page has a red, big red stamp, like all the way diagonally across the page with a particular security code on it. This is back then, right? It, you know. It's a little different today. It's all analog. But the yeah. bottom line was, if that script showed up anywhere, that number was attached to my name, and I'd like they take my firstborn, you know. <laughs> well, so you got the call before? Did was it before production started, or was it again just kind of? 
a little bit be a little bit before. Okay. Um, I think they were in kind of like pre mode, just trying to kind of hey hey guess what Brad you know a little heads up here. Well, what was cool was they they um Jim was was cut he was shooting and then he was his editor was cutting sequences. Okay. Out of order, out of context. But they would send me videos because we th- we knew by time the film went, it was running late. The release date, which was now mm-hmm. thirty years, you know, <laughs> right July today, 4th weekend. Yep. Uh-huh. Um, those never move. The marketing department rules all, <laughs> right? Yeah. So they delay the film. Then the shoot gets late. The composer's the last addition, right? The last creative to make a contribution for the most part, and. Um, we have to do it no matter what. So what was supposed to be six weeks became five weeks, became four weeks. Wow. So, yeah, it was pretty crazy. That Yeah, that, that sounds like it. Um, but I guess, so when you're coming into the second one, you kind of know the story a little bit more at this point. You kind of know uh, a little bit of the characters. And um, I kind of want to get into just the kind of the method behind this, some of the, the themes. That dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. I mean, you hear throughout, and you hear just that that constant rhythm and metal clanking. Um, is what what was the reason behind it? I mean, it's almost like when I'm when we were just watching it. You know, it's suddenly when it goes to slow motion. You know, and it's like all the sounds just go away except for the score, mm-hmm. and uh, you just hear that rhythm just hitting through. Is that how much is that it, you're going into it, or or with what Jim's trying to trying to do, or how does that work out? Or is it different between each sequence? Well, for these films particularly, um, it's very intuitive and gut level, my process, in creating the theme from the very beginning. You know, So for the most part, luckily, we were in sync because on this one, he was n- almost never available. Mm. Um, I did this all in my garage, in my studio oh in my wow. garage. And um, which Jim joked about the most expensive every ever movie or movie ever made, and you're scoring it in your garage. But um, <laughs> I needed his approval before finalizing every piece of music. Right? He needed to say yes or yes, but a little bit to the left here or or whatever. And luckily, we were very in sync because there was no time, and often there. Were I was would wait for him till two in the morning before he could free up enough time to come by for an hour mm. and sign off so I could move forward basically. And so he came to your garage and yeah, and, and yeah he would it. just he would just come that, by. That's awesome. And <laughs> um which was in Studio City. Yeah. Um and luckily not that far from some of the places he was shooting in Burbank. Um, but then they were mixing it in S- Lucas Skywalker Ranch in Northern California. Right. And I literally had a courier, because this was analog. You couldn't just send it over the internet or, or something. So these are m- tapes that I'm mixing it to. And there's a guy sitting. I didn't want him in my studio. He's sitting on a folding chair out on my parking pad, you know, <laughs> outside right. the door, waiting for the cues from Reel 3. I would hand him those. He would literally run to Burbank Airport, get on a plane, and fly to Northern California. Wow! Yeah, that's what it was. That um, that is a uh, that is a PA right there. Um, <laughs> but that no, that's amazing. And uh, so oh, so well, you know, I didn't really answer your question. Well so it was very intuitive, right? Um, you know, I don't. 
in a film like this, if my if my brain, if my intellect got too involved, I wouldn't trust it very much, you know, because yeah. the audience, Jim never wanted the audience to be too engaged this way. He wanted here and here, you know, it's just yeah. like to impact, you know, so. Well, because the yeah. movie is, is, oh, it's constant. You're just yeah. always getting bombarded by stuff. And, and right. I mean, that's just, that's the machines too, yeah. you know, so it works on the character level, but it works on a story level as well, you know. Well, the whole thing about the rhythm that you're talking about is it's, it's really almost non-musical music. Um, and that's true in both Terminators. Um, the sound for the T-1000, which you might not have even distinguished as score, but there's a sound that I created often when he's around that's just like... Yeah. And it was actually real instruments. It was a reverse of a brass... Anyway, it's, it's a long story, but it, it, it was almost everything in this movie originated with acoustic instruments. Not that I performed, but that I got from samples, and then I would play with them and okay. turn them upside down and backwards and right. you know, do stuff. But that rhythm was just almost like, you know, it's his heartbeat. So if he's on the scene, you know, there are times where we chose not to have it, which is actually makes a big impression because if it sure. when it in this film, when the things noticed even in these sequences, when there's a moment of quiet, it's very dramatic because you're getting bombarded all the time. So you're like it's just that yeah. And, you know, it, it's interesting. Another thing that I was thinking of, you know, watching like that last scene there in, in the uh, with the furnaces and everything. I'm sitting there thinking, well, first of all, they should have grabbed his hand because now there's another, what, four sequels after this one. Um, but, uh, you know, you don't hear the machinery going on in the background. You it, everything it, it looks like was put in post, you know, every all the sounds and the sound design and everything like that. How much did you work with the sound designers to go with your music as well? Because your music is very metallic as well. Yeah, and there were some moments I noticed where I kind of went, you know, where there's like some clash. Um, we didn't have time. It, in, in the best of all possible worlds, we would have had conferences. And How said, much time did you have on this? Well, I had this early time where I was developing while they were shooting. But from the time where I had to really frame by frame compose, right. no time really because they kept changing the length of the special effects. So I was constantly recomposing. Um, but I would say the main, the main thrust uh, of the time, which is why I say I have PTSD, I think I was working about 20 hours a day seven days a week for about three weeks. Wow, yeah. three weeks. Yeah, but I, I mean I had more time than that, but that was the actual final production of the music where I had wow. to yeah. compose it. That's when you were handed the, the, the final cut. And the and final cut. And yeah. go, oh, okay, this is kind of how long. And it, even yet, I didn't see all of it. Yeah. There were slugs. Really? You know? So you're watching something <laughs> that goes scene missing or effect missing. Sometimes it's like a cartoon, like they have a, like a little... So you like had no idea what it looked like until it was no some of it well some I of did. it okay. yeah but I, but not all of it okay well, but and so now getting back to the sound design though so how much did you work with them on, on I didn't you didn't you I didn't really have time didn't. It no like. and and the scary thing for me aside from this film I've been at the final mix which is where the, almost a theater like room with a huge board there's usually a guy on sound effects a guy on dialogue and a guy on music or gal whoever's there. And um, that's the final, the film dub, we call it. And I have been at 
every single one of mine because I realized early on as a composer that that's where the music really gets finished. Mm. Because if something's played louder than you intended it, it's wrong. If something's played quieter than you intended it, it's wrong. And you can't always get it perfect, obviously, when you're competing with all that. Do you guys usually fight about who? No. In <laughs> fact, most compo a lot of composers would not even be allowed because they just don't have time to hear a point. Right. So I really picked my battles and didn't wear out my welcome, you know. Right. But I didn't get to do that on T2 because I was composing right. in L.A. while they were mixing. So I didn't know how the sound effects sounded. Wow. I wasn't there to say, hey, if we take that high presence that you have that has a pitch to it and we pitch it down, it'll be less weird with the music because my music has a pitch and this tone of a, a whistle or a, a just a, like a machine drone, that it's, it's like, uh, and my music is, uh, and it's like, uh, you know, they don't go <laughs> right. together. But they did a great job. They had great yeah. people. So. What, do you, what do you take away from your work on any one of the Terminators? What, what are you most proud of? Any, any certain parts or anything that stands out in your memory that, that you're just like, yeah. I, I, for this one, and, and, and Jim, it was like his main thing was that I actually got it done on time. Well, that worked. Yeah, that, that's true. And literally, I would wake up at four in the morning <laughs> in just almost like a cold sweat, like, I've got to back to work, got to go back, because it really was almost impossible. And yeah. I developed a whole technical system with two big music computers and all this stuff to be able to to do it on time by showing Jim stuff without having to record it. Till anyway, there were all these technical aspects that um, were almost as important because if I hadn't finished, it would have been a disaster. Sure, you know? yeah. But yeah, I, I, I mean, that last sequence, I mean, it's moving. It, yeah. You know, it's very, I hate to use the word, but relatively, especially the first one, not as much this one, but I hate to use the word cheesy. There's a kind of synthesizer back in time, which now is very hip again, Yep. And it's a sound that I worked for years to kind of get away from. But there's certain thing limitations to the technology. So I do hear some place where my imagination was here and what was able to be done, partially just because this was on an optical soundtrack originally. So there couldn't be that much information on the soundtrack. Right. Just right now, if you go to one of the big, you know, sci-fi action movies, you know, the Marvel or the whatever, it's so loud. They just put everything. They just keep throwing. We didn't have that ability. We only we had a ceiling of 85 decibel compared to 110 you're hearing in some of these movies, which is making people deaf. <laughs> wow. We were talking about this earlier with Josh. But anyway, yeah, so um, given the, the, the time and whatever, you know, for the most part, I can I seem to be able to watch what – watch it without wincing too much. There are a couple of places where, of course, I would do it differently now. Sure, sure. But there's a certain depth that's available now in the bottom end and, yeah. and the top end, technically, that wasn't available then. How many people did you have for your orchestra? I mean, you say you did it in your garage, but you, you still had folks doing just two. Me? Two. Playing 95% wow. of everything that you're hearing. Wow. Percussion, keyboards, whatever, and then the wonderful Ross Levinson, who can do on an electric violin just stuff that does these visuals sure. justice. Sometimes it sounds like an electric guitar, but sometimes it's just like a tearing 
Yeah. yeah. You know? That's that's amazing. So it was really the the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then but you uh you didn't after Terminator, uh that that again the Terminator two, um is a huge success. I would even say these are one of those movies where the sequel may have overstepped the original. And uh, how did you think that was going to be the case again when, when you saw that? Well, you know, it's interesting. There's, there are, and this I didn't expect, but there are fans of one or the other that don't, that don't like the other. Really? There, there are real fans of the first one that feels this got too Hollywood and too big and yeah. too soft because they like that <laughs> kind of low budget the gritty edge yeah, you know yeah. but um no I, I didn't i didn't i mean i i think that once i started i knew more on this one mm-hmm. than the other one and certainly there was a lot at risk as i said at the moment it was the most expensive movie ever made wow now i would be remiss in in a- not asking you this question because um i am I'm, I'm a theme park nerd uh and there was a little attraction at universal studios um it was terminator 2 3d and you worked on that one as well? Yes, I did. Yeah. Uh, d- what what did you think about doing a theme park attraction and, and doing the music again for that? Well, I didn't it what for me it wasn't a theme park attraction. Ultimately, they put it together that way. Sure. I did I scored a you film. The film, yeah. Yeah, so the film was this I don't know, 12 minutes long or it something? Something like that. It was, yeah. centr- it was a central thing and it was on a screen. There there are other things, you know, but I didn't yeah. have anything to do with that. But um the thing that was wild about that is it uh, the original was in in Orlando, Florida, right? Yep. And there was no mixing stage in the world that had the ability to mix that because huh. it now it's pretty common Atmos or whatever. But back sure. then it had twenty four independent speaker channels in the in that auditorium. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. this way, yep. that way. Yeah this way everywhere so i had to record it specially I had all these separate tapes wow. that had to be coordinated and in order to mix it we had to sit in the actual building in in the room in in orlando at night when everybody went home and we would mix it <laughs> wow. in that room wow because that's the only room that had that speaker system wow yeah. well i i and i just know there's I, i've i've seen that probably more times than i've seen <laughs> the movies you know really? i i, I yeah. would I'm not going to admit how long I lived at Universal Studios, but it was a long time. Uh, well I one, one thing <laughs> I want to say about that is that, uh, that I just remembered is that actually that was r- rather nerve-wracking because Jim was not there. Really? He was, r- I don't know what he was doing at he, the time. But he shot the film portion. Yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah, no, but in yeah. post-production, oh, he, he was totally he off was doing something. He, I don't know, he was in deep diving in the ocean, what he was doing. You know? <laughs> right. I think Titanic was raising, coming up. Raising the Titanic. Yeah. yeah. But but it was really kind of nerve-wracking because he, he is so particular yeah. that I was like, oh, this is really interesting because I don't have – I'm just shipping this stuff. And, I mean, I, sh- I played him some ideas for motifs, but, but cue by cue, he wasn't – I think he came once or twice, but he wasn't as involved on wow. that. Wow. Um, and then you worked on another project with them, though. Another one of my favorite films, True Lies, yeah. right? That, yeah. that, see, yeah, Thank I'm not you. alone. Uh, True Lies is awesome. And, and so was it fun to get back into it? And that one you were not doing in your garage, was that? No, I actually, <laughs> I actually did um, because the picture was over budget <laughs> and... I wanted full orchestra, and the studio said, oh, my God, because they had done 
not that long before the abyss with oh, Jim, which yeah. was oh, I'm blanking. Alan Silvestri, mm-hmm. really nice guy, did the music on that, and um, they were really afraid of Jim and full orchestra because <laughs> when you got a hundred guys sitting and gals sitting there, and you stop for half an hour to discuss or argue or try to make a change on something, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just. It go, that's how it goes through the roof. So yeah. there was a time thing. So they made me really, really promise that I would make sure that that didn't happen. So I said, absolutely. You know, oh my <laughs> God. So, so I mocked up every one of those cues in my studio, wow. like note for note. Yeah. Then when he'd approve it, it would be orchestrated. The parts would be printed. You know, we ended up yeah. doing about seven days of sessions. And I think ultimately there were hundreds of musicians because you don't get the same people every day you know wow. that's weird i didn't realize that yeah yeah so, so you, you get your first chairs but often you know if you have a section of 30 some odd string players it's not necessarily on tuesday that everybody who is there on monday because they're booked somewhere else but these people are amazing they just read it and play it barely a rehearsal so there are like 600 musicians all together oh, coming wow. and going but that was great because I really I've been waiting to combine some of my studio stuff with more classic you know acoustic work right I was going to say because I, I remember the score from True Lies and, and how sweeping and epic it is as yeah. well and it definitely it's a completely different vibe than what you get on Terminator yeah so well it was it had precedent see the thing is Terminator had no precedent yeah so I was totally in create from scratch something totally unique true lies on the other hand was quoting stuff okay you know I mean it really yeah. was not my score exactly but I mean the film it, it was tongue-in-cheek James Bond it had all these right. elements that weren't another world they were identifiable so I have to say I was influenced by other music when Jim said in the first eight bars of this, if they don't know it's for fun and it's not a Terminator because it was him and Arnold and me again, <laughs> right. right? So he said, if we're dead, you know? Yeah. And without really realizing, I started to write something and I, I realized I was being heavily influenced by Leonard Bernstein's music, dance music for West Side Story. So in that opening thing of uh, uh, not the tango scene there. No, but (laughs) the opening sequence where where um, well the opening and the opening sequence where Arnold's going down the mountainside. Yeah, it. it, I tried. I made him dance. It was done. Whoever did it, you know, I'm sure it was a double. (laughs) Right. But the 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 somersaults and the running in his tuxedo. (laughs) And I did try to make it feel like dance. You know. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun. That's fantastic. All right. I've been sitting here asking Brad a lot of questions. I think uh, maybe open it up to you guys if you are have any questions you'd like to ask. Got one in the back. I'll walk over the mic. These seats are amazing, aren't they? Wow. Hi. Hi. I'm just wondering, um, are they editing with like a temp track to start and then you score, or how does or and do you give them the temp track, or how does all that work? Well, you brought this is this is a long discussion, but you brought up the reason why I eventually wasn't really sad to move away from the whole area because the temp track be- became the ruling creative force of music and film. As the technology got such with digital and CDs, the film editor would have a stack of the f- best scores of all time 
and look at a scene and just plop on, oh, this is that, that cue from, from uh, Gladiator I really love. Or this is, so they throw all this music on, and often I had to beg for my first screening to not have that music on so my imagination could be, it was like a romantic triangle. Before, it was me in the film, and it was this love thing. You know, even if the film wasn't perfect, I would find what I loved about it and, you know, find a way to, to work with it. But once you hear a scene with another piece of music, you're in a triangle then because you're kind of second-guessing. Well, my imagination is sort of telling me this, but they had this, so maybe I need to go in the middle. You know, it's really not conducive. Luckily with Jim, never happened. He had temp track because he, they were, directors were often, rightfully so, didn't believe in the, in the patience of studio execs to watch a film without music, because then they would say, oh, this scene's too long. They didn't understand, really, you know? So there was a temp track, but he spared me from listening to it. And, and then with other directors that I work with, like Jonathan Kaplan on The Accused, or you know, certain people that I had a good relationship, they would not, they would let me screw, they would make a print, a video print, without the temp music. But they were, and on this one, what was fun was that I was, um, and on True Lies, because I was, mo I was working in my studio and getting sequences, I would ship him my temp version of that cue, and they would start to put it in so that there was like this temp version, but it was the music that I was actually designing for that. So that's the best way to go, yeah. All right, we got one more uh, question here. Hi. Hi. Um, so first off, I want to say that my favorite part that you did was during the scene where he has the minigun shooting at all the cops and everything, and the score is just so cool and laid back, and like it's not like if it was done today, it'd be like Motley Crue or some shit. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> like it's just so laid back. I think it fits his personality uh, perfectly. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you for your effort of doing what twenty hours a day for three weeks. Yeah. Like, that's ridiculous. But given the time that this was done, did you have any pressures? Because it was kind of the same time where they were everything was trans transitioning to like digital audio and all the effects like that. And you said it was all based off of analog instruments that you then converted. Was it like a pressure to do that, or is that just a choice that you'd wanted to kind of run with? Yeah, no, no pressure artistically other than to make sure Jim loved every scene. Um, and you know what? He did, with one exception. And luckily, it was a scene that he sent me early, and that was the canal chase. Because I looked at that, and I saw this big, heavy truck. And I really, you know, it was like dealing with the truck. I was the truck. And he said, he listened to me, and he went, no, Brad. You're the scared mouse. So he, it was like, a, this is the way I love to work as a composer. People say, I don't know much about music. I'm like, oh, thank God. You know, because the people, the people who think they know about music are likely to say, this is a funny scene. It needs a xylophone. You know what I mean? But, but, but in this case, um, it really was important that he gave me an, like kind of an acting direction. That works best because in my imagination, he's not saying, I want you to write, you know, he's just saying, I want you to really score the fear of that kid. And the sound effects will take care of the truck and the size of it. Yeah, so. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, but all the choices, all the choices to go back because I get off the tracks and all the choices about the texture of it, the choice of sounds were mine. And then I, I, I showed Jim and explained to him where I was coming from, and we agreed. All right, we got one right here. Hi, uh, my name's Amberly. I'm this guy's wife. Oh, um, hi, Amberly. <laughs> hi, nice to meet you. Um, as a wife, as a mother, um, I've just been in awe of the Central Coast Film Society and the effort my husband and the team have put into reaching our community. And over the last year or so, we've obviously seen how important it is um, for our community to find new ways to reinvent themselves um, as a human development um you know, education uh, track that I'm on. Um, building resiliency is also really important and a strong focus in our education system. Um, as I hear you speak about the amount of hours and time you have put into all of this, I would love to know if you have some sort of advice, inspiration that, you know, you can offer our community for anyone who is wanting to step into these big dreams and goals that they may have. Do you mean specifically writing music for film or just in general? open to interpretation. Yeah, I imagine no you weren't alone in all of this. So what really touched you and led you to be able to get to this point? And and I will add, you were doing this in your garage, which a lot of people this last year were doing as well. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny because I, I had a great run and it had kind of a, a shape to it. And I think that when I was young and starting out, I was just so gung-ho. I would just, you know, I, I wanted to make it work. I loved film. I didn't come in wanting to, the music to be shown off. I wanted to be a filmmaker, and this was my contribution. So I think in general, for me, who wanted to be a rock star as a teenager, I had to make an adjustment. And somebody very wise said to me, you have the passion and the talent as a musician. If you stay with this, you're gonna find a place. But I had to go for a number of years not knowing what that place was and just trying things, you know? So I think being open, flexible, but committed, and whenever you have an opportunity, just go into the wall for it, you know? Awesome, yeah. awesome, yeah. There are a couple of other questions. All right, we'll go here and then here. Thank you for a great score. We oh, really appreciated you. that. And um, I've read stories of from crew members who have worked on James Cameron films and some not so kind uh, comments about what a, a tyrant he can be and, mm -hmm. and how difficult he is. Some people love working with him. So I was just wondering, is, is that true? Is he really difficult to work with or is he um, a fair person? So... I basically completed three films before I saw the um, Mr. Hyde side, to be honest. So, so I had a very special situation. He would come, and it would be the two of us, maybe my music editor, in my studio. And it was almost always respectful, and everything was cool. A couple of times, he got up tight just because of time and a computer was taking too long to to load so I I had this very unusual situation and way that I worked with him on true lies I came to the final mix um, and 
I saw a moment with with a, a, a somebody who's working on the film where he just obliterated them, and I literally walked out of the room, you know, because I was just like I was so shocked, and I can't tell you why or what, but I do know that he has one of those rare brains. I mean, if he could write the music, he would. He is so engaged in everything that I think it just, the pressure on him, because he always sticks his neck out, I just think it's pressure. And, you know, sometimes it gets away from him. I don't think it's his intent, you know, but I do know, and I have seen, he can be tough. He can be really tough. All right, we got right here. Yep. So I was wondering, you, you spoke about how your time before, or, you know, you were running out of time before you really even had time to start T2. Right. Um, what was your spotting session with Jim like at that time? And, and how did that maybe differ from the Terminator and, and True Lies? If you can recall, yeah, that's a, that's the interesting thing. It's all f it all flows. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the spotting session is when you sit. A composer sits with director, director, producer. In TV, the producers are often there, and the director's already gone. And you go through second by second. You say, "There's music here, and it starts here, and it ends here," and maybe a comment about the thought of what it might be or the direction for it. And there's notes. And those notes become the Bible of what you deliver, basically. On the Terminator films, the music is so relent—you know, everything is so relentless that it's like I don't remember really a classic spotting session. I do remember talking about things like that canal chase or whatever, um, and maybe occasionally uh, Jim would say, "We're going to be quiet here," but it was forget the number of minutes but it, it there's a lot of music but um yeah I don't I don't remember singling out I was just send sequence write the music go 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 you know I, I think it was just assumed that there was a lot of music you know everywhere <laughs> all right I think we've got one more back here well thank you for coming uh, my name is Caleb and I actually have a question I've been wanting to ask for 20 years <laughs> ever since I first saw the first two films um, the tone is drastically different from the first and the second film. In the first film, you know, you have the sense there's a whole bunch of swells, and in the main title theme, there's the drum beat, uh, da dun da dun da dun dun dun. Right. And um, I noticed that that wasn't in the second film. Uh, that da dun da dun da dun dun dun, and it became strictly da dun dun da dun. So I'm I'm kind of curious as to did the genre of the film kind of have any effect on, you know the the overall sound, because um, I I just noticed like there's like just little differences in the main theme that were that were changed and then of course you added some in the second half of the T2 film where it got really orchestrated and epic, and I guess I have a kind of a tailing question is is out of the two scores. Which one was more fulfilling to you as a composer? Yeah, interesting. Um, well, obviously, the Terminator, Arnold's character, is very different in one film to the next film. So 
I don't remember, again, making intellectual or conscious decisions, but I applied, you know, I, I kind of allowed his, this film to be, T2, to be what it was, talk to me, and then I talked back to it musically, you know? So it was kind of just that kind of a cycle. And um, it's interesting because that motif you're talking about was created on a piece of technology called a Prophet 10 on the original Terminator. And when they were doing the Terminator live show, they couldn't get anywhere close to that sound. And I finally had to get this master guy in Britain who was, anyway, long story. But the bottom line is that it's a different kind of a feel for the original Terminator. And um, didn't, it just didn't even occur to me to go back to that particular element. Just didn't happen. You know. Um, tell me, th what was the tail question again? Which which one did you find more fulfilling? Oh. I, I can't really say. I would have to say the second because not only was it epic, but the whole scene was epic. I mean, the amount of money and the pressure and the all of that, you know, I mean, Jim would come back from the set and the one time he kind of blew up in my studio, I... I couldn't believe how I answered him back. I thought I was going to get fired, but I said, Jim, go home. I literally said, go home. I'm working too hard for you, for you to talk to me that way. And my music editor is with me, and that came out of my mouth. And I looked, I looked at Alan. Alan looked at me, and we're like, shit. <laughs> it got very quiet. And then, and then Jim said, finally said, Brad, you sound just like what I just said to the Caracol people when they came on the set and were pressuring me. So all of that was just so epic. You know, the first one was down and dirty. We didn't know, and there wasn't much money or, pre you know, it was this, this thing was amazing, you know, just on every level, and I think it kind of shows. And I think for me, the pressure of it is actually probably, I wouldn't choose it again, but it was probably a positive element of how the music came out as far as me literally being just under pressure, you know. All right. Well, I got to try this out because this looks just too too cozy here. I like it. I'm Mr. Comfort They here. should flip yeah. these seats around. Now, Brad, I just want to say thank you so much for coming. Was there any other questions? I, because we're, we're running a little long. We got one more, Brad. You got time for one more. Yeah, yeah I'm good. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's I'm, <laughs> by the way, thank you for your thoughtful questions. It's a here, here you go. I just wanted to ask. Uh, a lot of a lot of scores are coming out on vinyl now with like these deluxe, like huge, amazing, expensive editions. What of your films would you like to see put onto vinyl on like a really deluxe, like liner note, nice thing that haven't already been put? Um, well, the one that that was a big deal because I finally got to do this. Someone had released uh, uh, my score from The Terminator without my supervision at one point. Not the original, but another one. And um, that always just made me crazy. It's a long story. But um, Milan Records came to me in 2015, 16, and I did a complete remix of The Terminator because my original mix on that was mono because that film was mixed in mono. Really? That, I didn't realize not, that. T talk about not having confidence. There was a $50,000 <laughs> bill to make that film mix in stereo, 
and Orion Pictures, who later took all the credit for why it was such a big hit, didn't want to invest the $50,000. So that's a mono. They made a fake wow. stereo at one point. And then, ugh, my dates are crazy, but MGM did a wonderful special edition DVD where they paid me and a lot of, and we went back to Lucas Skywalker um, and did a 5.1 reel, you know, not synthesized like this other thing that was done. But the, um, the original uh, Terminator, I did a remix and there's a beautiful edition on Milan Records. You know, I'm cool with that. I actually brought some stuff. There's some vinyls of Serpent and the Rainbow. I don't know if anybody knows that film. But these are the old Verace vinyls that I happen to have that I figured someone might enjoy. But, yeah, I think vinyl's cool, you know. I'm not – I don't even have a turntable anymore to tell you to choose. So I'm not that plugged in. I know the difference. I love the sound of analog. Um, there's, a, there's a score that I did – uh, I think it was TNT. It was a television project, but it was beautifully done, shot in Europe, about Rasputin. It's called Rasputin. Alan Rickman, and and uh, an amazing cast, amazing, you know, best British actors and everything. And that score was orchestra as well. Very, very different than all this. And I'd love to see that re-released. Some scores are getting re-released now because the musicians' union has opened up to not charging the reuse payment. So if you print, do one and you print 1,500 or 3,000 copies or like special editions, they don't charge you that huge union fee. So now there's an opening for, you'll see more scores coming out from everybody, you know, that have orchestra. That, you, that was the problem before, to release an orchestra score, you had to have like a True Lies or something where you thought you'd make your money back, but not for a, a smaller film. Another question. Oh yeah, who? What's up and coming that that you're you're enjoying? You know, I I go to movies and I really just want to be an audience. I'm I'm hearing a lot of good, very competent music. I mean, really, I mean, there was no school for film scoring when I came up. I had to learn everything on the job, you know. But there's stuff is sounding really good. I'm not that drawn yet to, to actually feel some some memorable, um, unique stuff. It kind of all has a sound to me that's pretty similar. Um, but there's a lot of talented pe people coming up. There's a forum on Facebook for f media composers, and there's just like, hundreds of people on there and and they're all there's a lot of talent it got kind of democratized it used to be a very tight club and the technology has democratized it but i um and i'm sorry i'm bad with names i have heard some quirky stuff that i really i, I really love it when somebody stretches and doesn't do the obvious i got a question for you brad yeah have you seen the the terminators you didn't work on Pieces of them. Pieces of them. Okay, I was just wondering what your what your feelings were. I, on. I haven't been moved by them. Yeah. Um. And I don't think. I mean, there's something. You know, j it's. It, I don't know. It's probably hard for me to be objective. Yeah. Uh, but it's more like which one is a little bit better than another one, as opposed to this one is good. <laughs> you know. Right. Right. Yeah. 
All right. And my final question, though, for you. So what you got in the pipeline? What are you working on? What's what's the next projects for you? Um, well, since I kind of left the whole Hollywood thing, I've been writing original musicals, um, book, lyrics, and music. Wow. And I was thinking about this potential question because I've been interviewing. In the release of... So in April last year, I released the, an audio version, like an audiobook version of my latest musical. I saw that Broadway was shut down. And before all the Zoom stuff started to happen, I rushed and I had all these audio elements for this musical. I just edited it and put it together and released it. It's called Full Circle. So if you Google Brad Fidel Full Circle, there's a YouTube. It doesn't have any visual. It's just cover art. But it's a full-on two-act Wow, musical, and it's it's on YouTube right now. Yeah, it's on YouTube. Wow, that's yeah. fantastic. Well, again, it's just a listening experience. You have to, you know. But friends have said, you know, I was kind of worried about a musical without visuals, but they enjoy it. Yeah, so that's great. great. So that's the kind of thing. You know, it's really funny because I think if you took my Terminator music and thought about how many people had heard it, yeah, and if you take my personal work that I've been doing in the last, it's really been decades. Like I did a one-man show that I was performing around, and I because I I was a singer-songwriter before doing all this stuff. But anyway, the bottom line is, you're talking, I don't know, maybe millions and millions of people have heard my film music. Yep. As far as my personal work, I think we got up to a thousand people <laughs> listen to the YouTube. Well, <laughs> yes. And you know what? It doesn't matter to me, you know. But I really, I really do appreciate people who have created a project. Because, you know, I did some films. I didn't love the films. But retroactively, the fact that they got it together and got it made, and you were telling me about this project that you did, but you got to hand it to people because I'm really good at creating, but networking, getting things out there, you know, like trying to get this show on the stage, you know, that kind of thing. I really respect the people who have that particular muscle. I like to sit in my cave and create <laughs> stuff. You know? Right. Well, I think it's safe to say, Brad, though, some of your music, though, is going to live forever in cinematic history from what we just saw on the screen. So, folks, let's give Brad a big round of applause. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. And thank you, Brad, for being here. Um, folks, thank you so much for coming. I uh, hope you have a great day and uh, have a happy and safe Fourth of July. And there you go. That was our Q&A today on Terminator 2 Judgment Day with Brad Fidel, the composer of Terminator. And as you heard, so many other amazing things. Um, that's a wrap. So, yeah, the, thank you so much for uh, listening. Uh, next time, guys, please come out to our event. It is amazing experiences. Uh, we will continue to have more of these coming up in the near future. You won't want to miss it. It's going to be phenomenal times. We are going to come back rolling and rolling strong. The, we are a 501c3 charitable organization here at the Central Coast Film Society. And uh, that is who presents this, the Take 18. I am Daniel Lair, the executive director and founder of the Central Coast Film Society and your humble host here on Take 18. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. Don't forget to like and share us here on uh, wherever you may be listening. If it's on uh, Facebook or on Instagram, anything like that, just go ahead and share it. And that way we can get out there in the world and more people can hear the amazing things that Brad had to say. Absolutely awesome. Thanks again to Brad and the movie experience. And you guys have a safe and happy 4th of July weekend. That's a take. <laughs>